When writing code, test-driven development is a commonly accepted methodology to ensure development of high-quality software. Your organization's data, on the other hand, is an entirely different challenge. Data can be missing due to human error, a failure with a third-party provider, a botched release, or dozens of other issues. Even when not missing, data can still be corrupted or start to exhibit a trend in the wrong direction that isn't obvious to notice. Anomalo is a complete data quality platform. It can monitor your enterprise data and alert you to problems that are automatically detected. In this episode, I interview Jeremy Stanley about the ways in which teams are using the platform to monitor and improve their data quality. Jeremy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Kyle. Really excited to be here today. Before we get into Anomalo, can you tell me a little bit about your history in software and development? Absolutely, yeah. I, my co-founder Elliot, he likes to say I've been, you know, working with data and doing doing machine learning since before it was called machine learning. I started out actually in consulting, building models to predict behavior for insurance companies, and then went into technology. I worked in advertising technology. I worked in uh, marketing technology, and then most recently was at Instacart. I was the VP of data science and machine learning there at Instacart, and built models to predict customer behavior, to optimally route shoppers, to you know, predict what sequence a shopper should take inside a store to pick items. Um, so a whole bunch of really interesting and exciting data problems there. Is the genesis of the idea for Anomalo somewhere in that experience, or did it come uh, later in time? You know, I have had you know, issues with the quality of the data that I've used for making decisions or building products from you know, near the very beginning. And so it's always been a pain point. And you know, the question has been, well, how do you build a better solution to automatically you know, be able to address data quality and, and help improve it? My co-founder, Elliot, he ran product and growth at Instacart. And together, we worked on a lot of problems at Instacart and often would encounter data quality issues there. And you know, we were using homegrown solutions or some open source technologies to try to address data quality. And it, it was never enough. We were always on our back feet and reacting you know, to the latest issues we were having. And so we definitely knew that a lot of other companies wanted to be as data-driven as Instacart is. A lot of companies were building modern data stacks and were going to encounter the same kinds of data quality issues. Um, and so it gave us, I would say, the courage to know this was a problem lots of companies were facing and, and needed better solutions to. Well, you guys have a great name, quickly implies we're going to do some sort of anomaly detection, but more formally, what's the scope of services offered by Anomalo? Yeah, so Anomalo assumes that our customers have a data warehouse. You know, typically, it's a cloud data warehouse. It's in you know, Snowflake or BigQuery, Redshift, or Presto, you know, any of those kinds of solutions. And assumes they're standardizing and collecting a ton of data about their operations, their customers, their transactions, you know, anything that matters to them in that data warehouse, and then democratizing access to that data. And yet, you know, how do you, as you, as you democratize access, as you build products and make decisions on it, how do you trust that data? And so Anomalo is trying to address that fundamental problem. How do we ensure that the end users can trust the tables that are in that data warehouse? And so as you think about the core services Anomalo offers, the core, the core product, it's focused on tables in your data warehouse. And you set Anomalo up to monitor an individual table. Sometimes customers will monitor only the you know, 10 or 50 most critical tables that they have. 
Sometimes it could be thousands of tables that they're monitoring that they care about. And what Anomalo does is, is we are independently watching data in that arrive into that table. And we're going to ensure that the data is arriving on time, that the volume of records that you would expect are in that table. You're not missing some big chunk of data. We're going to dig in and look at any of the potential missing you know, data issues you could have. It could be a segment of data has dropped out. It could be you know, null increases have spiked in a specific column. And we're going to automatically detect anomalies in the data, changes in distribution, duplicate data, changes in the schema in the table. And then we provide a platform for customers to come in and express the key metrics they care the most about and track those for anomalous behavior and even segment those within the business. Or to come in and add what we call validation rules, kind of hard and fast constraints that the data should meet. And if any of those things fail, we provide them a Slack notification, you know, letting them and the team responsible for that table know, here's the nature of the issue in this data. And within that, you'll go back into the product and be able to see you know, deep analysis that will explain you know, exactly where it broke, why it broke, what happened, give you more context for the issue. So every company is its own unique thing, a little bit nuanced. Are you able to provide some generic services out of box? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And when we first started Denomolo, you know, it wasn't entirely clear to me how much could you generalize this problem, right? How unique are each company's data sets? And it actually is a part of what makes the technical challenges that Anomalo is addressing behind the scenes really interesting. You know, we have to create algorithms and tools that can work on essentially arbitrary structured data from arbitrary companies and arbitrary verticals, and they need to be able to work in an intelligent manner. And so that's what we've been focused on since beginning Anomalo. And it turns out that you know, there's a tremendous amount of commonalities within tables, within an organization, or you know, across organizations in the, in the nature and the structure of the data. And so almost all of what I just described works out of the box. Just as soon as you point Anomalo at a table in the data warehouse, it starts looking for missing data, it starts looking for anomalies, it starts looking for the data arriving on time, and users don't have to do any tailoring or customization you know, our algorithms are able to react to the distribution and values and types of data that are present in that table. Now, you know, there are differences. There are differences in how frequently data arrives and how chunky the arrival of the data is. So sometimes some tables might only be updated, you know, once every 14 days or, you know, on every day except for Saturdays and Sundays. And the types of things that customers care about in the data is going to vary widely. And so what we found was there's this foundational set of things that everyone should care about. If a, if a column suddenly becomes null, you know, 80% of the time when previously it was only ever null 50% of the time, almost everyone is going to care about that. That's a, a sudden regression in the quality of that data that you probably want to know about. But, you know, if you're an e-commerce company, you might have a very specific restriction around the ordering of timestamps in a funnel right? You always ought to first receive the email and then the email should be opened and then clicked and then a, a purchase should happen after that. And you might want to ensure that those events are all happening in that sequence. And so, you know, that's going to require a user to come in and say, here is my expectation for how these, you know, four timestamps relate to one another. And I like to think about Anomalo providing the palette that makes it really easy for anyone to go in and make that kind of specification. 
Let's expand on that null example. I agree with you. If any table I was ever overseeing suddenly went from, you know, single digit null to 50%, I would absolutely want an alert. But maybe one out of 100 times, that's a false positive because we deprecated something. What's the steps like? How do I tell Anomalo to relax? Yeah, so that's a really fun part of what of what we do. And when we do these kinds of fully automated approaches, like the null detection, the algorithms are designed to alert once and then immediately self-heal. And so as soon as the next day comes in and you're still at that, you know, 10% null values when previously it had only been 1%, Anomalo now has data from the day prior and can say, okay, well, now there's an expected baseline change and we don't need to alert again. And so you would only get that first single alert. And for a long time, I worried on the product side that customers wouldn't want to get alerts when they knew something was going to happen. But it turns out not to be the case. Generally, if you know something's going to change, it's actually helpful to get the alert, confirming that, in fact, it did happen. (laughs) Because if it hadn't gotten that alert, that might also be an issue. And so customers usually aren't as sensitive to the types of alerts customers don't want to see are alerts where nothing actually happened, right? There was no distributional change. And so we're really careful. We do a lot of work behind the scenes I can talk more about to prevent us from sending alerts like that. Or they might they might not like alerts if the alerts are just irrelevant to them. If it's on a table they don't care about, or if it's for columns they don't care about. And so there's also things we can do in those situations. But generally, if it's a if it's a meaningful change and it's a change of a type that would be a regression in the table, they'll want to know about it. Well, as we said earlier, every business is a little bit nuanced. What are some of the things customers care about that don't belong in the out-of-box stuff that you end up seeing them first adopt? Yeah, so I think the probably the first thing will be defining key metrics. And so the way I think about, you know, a key metric is it could be a KPI for the business, you know, the average customer rating or, you know, the uh, average order value, you know, the average time it takes for some process to conclude. And so often customers will come in and they'll declare those metrics and they'll want to track those as time series and be you know, told if there's ever a huge spike in that metric. From there, they'll go in and they'll create maybe segmented versions of that. I want to see the average order value by platform of my customer. So iOS versus Android versus web, mobile web. And I want to track it uh, and see if there are any anomalies in any of those. So one direction is to go down the metric side. And the reason that can't be fully automated, you might ask the question, why couldn't the machine learning that we use to detect anomalies or detect drift, why can't that be applied to these key metrics? And the reason is when you define a key metric, you're actually putting a tremendous amount of weight on specific columns that go into that metric and the specific rows that matter the most in computing that metric. And so really what we're doing is we're providing a way for the user to say, this is the tiny slice of data that I care a tremendous amount about and I want to pay really close attention to it. And so it's worthwhile to to have them come in and define those. So that's one direction they might go. The other direction is to use more of the validation rules that we have. And a common one that you might immediately go to is, "I, I believe this column should just simply never be null. And that's different from what our out of the box algorithms are doing. Our out-of-the-box algorithms are telling you 
if the percentage of nulls suddenly increases, right? If you're if there were never any nulls and now you have one, we'll tell you about it. Or if the null percent went from 10% to 20%, we'll tell you about it. But maybe there's a column that you just think should never have nulls and you know that out of the box, then you can come in and specify that as a hard constraint. And if it fails, we kind of give you the root cause of, well, where are those null values coming from? Beyond that, we, we honestly, Kyle, we probably have you know 50 different types of checks that customers can add. To give you a sense of the flavor, you might want to track specific schema changes in the table. You might want to go deep into JSON and understand what's happening in JSON in some of your columns you know, with uh, semi-structured data. You might want to diff two tables. I have my prod data set and my staging data set, and I know I've done some ETL changes to get this new staging data, and I want to compare the prod version of this table to the staging version and identify if there are any differences by you know, joining them. We have checks that do that automatically. Or you can always, in our platform, we design it so you can always drop down into SQL and completely control things in SQL. So if you wanted to, on the metric side, if you wanted to compute you know, a whole collection of metrics by segment, you could just drop the SQL that creates those time series into one of our checks and we'll automatically start building those for you. Or on the key, on the validations you know, side, you can craft SQL that would return bad data and we'll alert you if that SQL ever does in fact return bad data. Very cool. Well, I've heard mostly, or perhaps this is my bias being revealed, but I thought of all sort of engineering, data science, DBA type applications for data quality monitoring. But knowing that those KPIs in there, it seems reasonable to me that like a regional sales manager could be checking their average order value and stuff like that. Do you have a sense of the composition of users that are looking at the reports? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And what I tend to find are, are three constituents will be you know, heavy users of Anomalo or heavy consumers of the reports or the notifications. You've got you know, data engineers or analytics engineers, people who are you know, responsible for the construction and population of key tables and all the processes leading up to that. They're going to care a lot about, you know, is that data arriving on time? Is it complete? Are there missing segments? Are there changes to the schema? And they may care deeper than that. They may care what's inside of the data, but maybe not. It depends upon the organization. In some organizations, you know, the data engineers kind of wash their hands of what's actually happening inside of the data. But that's your first constituency, the kind of data analytics engineers. The second would be what I would call uh, analysts or data scientists, you know, possibly machine learning engineers. You know, these are individuals whose job revolves around this data. And you know, they depend upon it to help others in the organization make decisions or you know, they're building products that depend upon the data. And they're often some of the heaviest users of Anomalo because they really do care about everything from did the data arrive on time through to is this very specific you know, uh, requirement of the structure of this data being met? And if not, why? Oftentimes, they'll use Anomalo to discover things about the data that they didn't know about. You know, we have over 100 different types of visualizations our product is generating as it's running and analyzing the data that you set it up to monitor. And so those visualizations can be very rich and can provide a lot of insight to those folks. And then the third constituent is what you're describing. You know, it could be a product manager who cares a lot about the A-B test results and wants to make sure that they're trending in a specific way or that the structure of that table meets some expectations. It could be a regional sales manager that wants to track what's happening regionally 
for them, or it could be somebody you know in operations that wants to you know track how often a specific customer requirement is being met. Any of those are great examples where they could also be using Anomalo. In the end, it's a it's a system that runs you know SQL against your data, you know automatically analyzes that SQL, produces results, and can send you notifications based upon some condition being met. And so our customers have taught us a lot about the different ways they want to use it. it. They start you know, with one very specific use case, and then it kind of grows from there. And where can I get those notifications and alerts as a user? How do they come to me? Yeah, so most of our customers get those notifications either in Slack or in Microsoft Teams. And you'll be really... We see a lot of value in having the notifications go to often you know, channels that are dedicated to a team. So your know, revenue analytics team is going to have their own dedicated channel, and they might have 15 tables that would route alerts to that channel. And you know, your finance operations team might have their own dedicated channel with a, de- a different set of tables going there. And so having you know, all of the people that care about that data sitting in that channel, able to start a thread on any of the notifications to you know, triage it, to understand the root cause and discuss the issue has been the most powerful notifications model. Now, you can also send notifications to other places like uh, PagerDuty, or you could use webhooks. We have a full featured API. And so sometimes you know, customers are using the API to run checks or to consume the results of checks out of the API. So there are other different methods, but I would say 90% of the time it's happening in Slack or Microsoft Teams. I think a healthy growing organization, not just because they're moving fast and breaking things, but most companies are simply going to encounter some of these data quality issues through time. You see a pretty wide spectrum of companies, I would imagine. Do you have a sense of what's typical? How many is is too many alerts? Not that uh, I don't want to act on them or they're not real, but terms of honing in on good data quality, what's a successful organization look like? That's a pretty nuanced nuanced question. And I think you're, you're right to preface it with, we see a lot of different companies at different stages. And you know, the first thing I would say is, I think of data quality as you know, something that erodes naturally over time, right? You know, if you only have one product, if one engineer you know, instrumenting data off of that product, then maybe at the very beginning, the data quality was perfect, right? The data exactly matched the intent of the engineer and exactly matched the intent of the business. But of course, you know, nothing successful stays that way. It constantly evolves, right? New product features are added, complexities introduced in code, external dependencies arise. You know, suddenly now you're getting data from third-party SaaS vendors or from other third-party data sources where you have almost no control of it. And so what tends to naturally happen in organizations is data quality, you know, erodes on a regular basis. And some customers, you know, experience, you know, a, a data quality regression daily or weekly. And in the wild, you know, with companies that aren't doing a lot of work monitoring these issues, I would say 90 to 95% of those data quality issues go unknown, undiscovered, right? And you end up just accumulating them over time. And maybe eventually you have an analyst that goes in and does a really deep dive on a specific segment of your data, and they discover all of the warts that you know, have, have appeared in that data over the past few years, and then they try to figure out ways around them, right? Hacks and kind of kludges to try to try to fix those 
data quality issues and come up with some reasonable insight and maybe a set of recommendations for how to fix things going forward. So I think that's where a lot of companies are today. And the goal of Anomalo is to allow them to catch those issues as they happen, right? And when you catch them as they happen, you have so much more insight into, well, what might be the cause? And you know, what is the real impact? And, and now how do I address this so that it doesn't create a scar in my data? Now, to answer the, the specific end of your question, you know, how many alerts is too many for a team? You know, I think we see, and I would do this at the team level, right? You've got one team sitting in a Slack channel. And, you know, I would say it's probably not very healthy if you're not getting at least a few notifications per week. You know, if you're not getting a few notifications per week, then you may not be testing your data as aggressively, or perhaps you don't have that much data. If you're getting a few notifications per day, I still think that can be healthy if it's something that you want to pay, you know, really close attention to, and maybe you're doing a lot of segmentation. Oftentimes our customers, they might be in a healthcare vertical, for example, operating in 30 states, and each of those states, you know, is a different independent data quality risk, right, if they're getting data from some third party in that state. If you've got 30 different entities sending you 30 different types of data, you know, there's a good chance you should be having multiple issues per day. And not all of them are going to be true positives. Some of them will be false positives because you expected it or you can ignore it. You know, maybe the column affected you no longer care about. And what I think makes Anomalo really valuable versus writing something yourself is when we send notifications, we include visualizations. And those visualizations go deep down into, well, exactly where in the table did this issue happen? So you have these null values in this column. Is it happening in this geography? Is it happening because of this specific you know, transaction type or product type or you know, partner is where it's happening? By providing that kind of rich transparency and insight, by analyzing the contents of the data and visualizing them, the end user can often look at that notification and go, oh yeah, this makes sense. I expected that. I don't have to worry about it. And so the kind of cost of the notification goes down if the quality and insightfulness of the notification is quite high. So I'm a big fan of test-driven development on the software side. And when I have a team of developers, I can look at certain metrics like their code coverage and things like that. And there's a part of my brain that's lighting up and saying, oh, this is kind of the same thing, but it also seems very different. Uh, do you make that comparison or can you compare and contrast test-driven development to the process of using Anomalo? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there are so many different ways to take that. I'll start with, I, I, let me see. So maybe I'll, I'll try to do a few. The first one, I, I also love test-driven development. You know, I, I, we have at, at Anomalo, you know, 99% code coverage. We run our code you know, coverage tests on every backend we support. You know, for our code to make sure that you know we don't have regressions that are specific to Snowflake or or BigQuery. So I love test-driven development as well. But tests for code are entirely deterministic. You know, if I have a unit test for code and I don't make any changes to the code, the test should stay the same. And so there's not a lot of chaos, you know, in in testing. If you're testing machine learning models, maybe a little bit more chaos, but that's an aside. Compare that to say monitoring your infrastructure, or um, that's actually quite a bit more chaotic. A lot of things are happening simultaneously on the infrastructure. They're happening in real time. And so you need a more sophisticated solution for testing your infrastructure. And you need something that's going to be monitoring that infrastructure. Now, 
Compare that to data. Data is you know, an order of magnitude more complex than just your infrastructure because data is reflecting everything you know, happening, connecting your business, your product to the real world. And so it's this huge surface area of change constantly coming through your business and through your data sets. And so it does require a very different approach to be able to effectively test and monitor data. If you take that very simplistic, I'm going to only write tests that I think should always pass approach to monitoring real world data, you have to choose between one of two extremes. One extreme is you test only the very bare minimum. You know, this column must be unique and this column should never be null. You can have these kind of very hard and fast, should never fail tests. And, you know, that's okay, but you're going to have tons of risk still because obviously that's only testing, you know, a tiny fraction of the surface area of data, right, and changes to the data that could impact your business. The other approach is to try to write rules for everything and, you know, come up with a thousand rules for each table. And it's totally unmanageable and unwieldy. You know, how do you specify all of those rules? How do you decide which ones should be there and which shouldn't? How do you update and manage all of those rules as they fail and change because your business and your product and your data is constantly changing? And so it doesn't scale and doesn't work very well, which is why, you know, we believe you need to have some machine learning that can actually draw data from the table and analyze it and, you know, detect changes in the drift of that data over time and why time series are so important in monitoring things like key metrics. So I think that's one distinction is just you have so much more chaos in data than you do in code. I think the other one is when are you running the tests? And so if you think about test-driven development, that's you know while you're actually developing the software. And you can think about doing some of that in the context of developing data models. So if you're using you know, DBT or you're using something else that you, you have, have to you know, evolve the data in your data warehouse, you can create a staging version of a data set and you can run tests on you know, that staging version of the data set that would confirm that the change you made is what you would expect to happen just, just in that transformation layer. And so I think that's a powerful thing to do. It, it can be hard to write those in SQL and Anomalo makes it a lot easier to write those. And in some cases, what's actually more powerful is to compare the resulting data set to the production version and to be able to get an intelligent diff of the two. So rather than having to specify what you would expect, let a computer analyze the data and tell you what is different. So I actually think that model is slightly more powerful and one that we support. But I think the big distinction is that changes made by analytics engineers is just a small fraction of the scope of changes that can materially affect the data. And so you really need to be testing your data in production every day with a set of healthy expectations and you know, time series and anomaly detection on top of that underlying data. If I'm testing my data in production, do I need to worry about any overhead that uh, these tests could place on the database? Yeah, so you definitely do. And there's a lot of things that we've built into Anomalo to help with that. The first one is, by default, we're just testing the most recent day of data. And so every time all of the automated tests are just looking at the most recent day, anytime you add a new test by default, 
It's going to just test the most recent day because the assumption is that you're running this on a regular basis. And so you'll be continually testing each day as it arrives. You can go in and say, I actually want to test the history of this table. Or in some cases, you might have updates happening in tables that are making changes in the past. You want to catch those. And so you can also tell Anomalo, no, I want to try to catch these historical changes as well. So that's one thing that, that helps. The second is we've done a lot of work to make sure that the queries that are being sent to the data warehouse are as efficient as possible. And so as an example, you know, if we're pulling data to build a machine learning model to detect drift, that's one of these automatic things that happen every day for every table. We actually use the data warehouse's random sampling capabilities to get just a small random sample of records that then go into memory and we build the machine learning models you know, on, on an application separate from the data warehouse. And so we really minimize the footprint because we don't have to query all of the data. We can get that random sample back efficiently. All of the time series checks, all of the, those key metrics, all the validation rules, they're typically just querying a single column and returning back a small subset of aggregate results related to that column. And given the columnar orientation of cloud data warehouses, those queries are really efficient too. So of course you can get yourself into trouble. We have customers, one customer in particular has, has a table that has 40 billion rows inserted into it every day. And so at that scale, you do need to be thoughtful and careful. And we have you know, advanced features that can do things like always snapshot every statistic so that you don't ever go back and query historically you know, for additional data. Um, instead, you're only gonna build an incremental snapshot and you'll have to wait, right, in order for a time series model to be able to be built on that incremental snapshot. So there are some advanced features if you have, you know, really huge data sets. So for any SaaS product, and I guess every company is going to be a little bit different about this, but I've been at a lot of companies that have a perspective of we need to have some measurement of ROI on every SaaS product we pick up. Do you have a sense of how people look at it? Is it like incidents per dollar or, you know, where do they measure the value that the organization's deriving? Yeah. So I think it's interesting with something like data quality because, you know, you have to be careful in how you evaluate it. You know, you an incident isn't in and of itself a good or a bad thing, right? It's it's good if that incident ends up allowing you to rectify, you know, a real issue that would have caused real problems. But if it's a distraction, it's not. And so, of course, the ultimate measure of value is you know, how many, you know, serious data quality issues are averted and how, how much faster are they averted with how much less effort because of a system like Anomalo. And so I think that's the, the ultimate metric of value. And in some customers, you know, even just a single data quality issue that's serious averted, you know, in a given month, it can save them a tremendous amount of, of money. Certainly at Instacart, we had experiences where, you know, a data quality issue caused, you know, an entire partner of ours, retail partner of ours, you know, to significantly get less sales on Instacart for a long period of time uh, because it wasn't identified. So you can quantify, you know, the economic impact of, you know, those, those kind of real rare, real impactful data quality issues. But I think there are also other components that are a little harder to quantify. And, and really, I would say, you know, trust in the data and somewhat by association, trust in the data team. You know, if you have an organization that wants to be data driven, wants to democratize access to the data and people are regularly getting caught, 
in the production, in the analysis stage and stuck on data quality issues, and they don't see that improving over time, the organization loses its trust in the data and they stop making data-driven decisions and they stop prioritizing data-driven products. And I actually think that's the greater economic cost that you want to avoid. And so in many of our companies, many of our customers, they see data quality as something that's existential for the data team. It, It has to be done. You have to maintain high quality data or you'll lose the trust of the organization. And so then the question is, well, what's the best way to do it? And, you know, should you just build something yourself or should you use a solution like Anomalo? And, you know, when they see the kinds of things that we've built, it becomes pretty clear that's not the kind of thing they want to try to build in-house. Yeah, totally. Well, I see an obvious case for an enterprise company. What do you see in terms of adoption at startups or even down to side hustles and independent developers? Yeah, so Anomalo is fairly focused on enterprises. That's what we've built the solution for you know our early design partners were you know dragon right you know companies in the kind of 10 billion plus you know private companies and our experiences at Instacart you know influenced the nature of the product as well. We do have startups that use Anomalo, you know, data teams of one can get a lot of value out of Anomalo. And so an example, um, we started working with Substack when they were very, very small as a customer. But we've really only focused on those startups when we think they'll grow fairly rapidly. And we haven't, you know, we haven't been as focused on uh, the smaller startups or side hustles. I do think we need to serve that segment of the market, and we will, but we'll want to launch something that is entirely self-service, you know, using our SaaS platform. And, you know, we may simplify the product some and put in some limits and constraints when we do that. But that's, you know, it hasn't been as high a priority as making this work for, you know, the enterprises. Makes sense. Well, the product sits on top of my data warehouse. So essentially, like every company is your potential customer. You've got a a (laughs) generic market in a lot of ways. But I'm wondering if we could zoom in on a particular industry or two and talk about use cases or implementation and how people take advantage of the solution. Yeah, yeah, so you're right. You know, if they if the company has a data warehouse and they use the data in the data warehouse, there are some companies I've talked to before where they have it and they don't really care about it yet. And it's kind of a vanity project. So that's not a great use case. But most people that invest in the data warehouse really do use the data. They're going to encounter issues and, and they could be, you know, a potential fit. So one thing that we do that is, I think, pretty unique in this space is we can deploy Anomalo entirely in VPC. So, you know, that means the uh, application in its entirety is running in the customer's cloud and, you know, their data never leaves an environment that they control. You know, we'll send some tracebacks, you know, for exceptions, monitoring and things of that nature, but never including any of the customer's data. And that's pretty important. And it ends up, it has ended up making us even more successful in some verticals like financial services and healthcare where there are you know, really strict regulations around data access. And you, know, you want to use a service like Anomalo on your most mission-critical data. And so it's going to be directly connected to your prod data warehouse. And so it just gives those customers more of a sense of security and, and removes a lot of you know, uh, security concerns they might have if they can run it entirely in VPC. In terms of the nature of you know, what the product does, another great example has been e-commerce. You know, anytime you have 
e-commerce uh, activity, you've got a, a ton of, of web transaction, you know, events, site visitation, you know, email activity, a lot of purchase data associated with it. And so being able to ensure that, you know, all of that data is arriving as you would expect and there aren't significant regressions in any of it, you know, really matters. The data is directly tied to your revenue and, you know, operations and success of those operations. We have some unique checks that we've developed for customers. Uh, a favorite of mine, and we've written about this some in the blog posts, is this concept of entity outliers. And I'll step back and just explain this a little bit. You know, what is an outlier versus, you know, what is an anomaly? When I think about anomalies, I think about a drift in a data set, a sudden change in a data set, some structural sudden change. That's what we mostly focus on. Anomalo is finding some structural change that's happened in the data that's adverse. An outlier is uh, different than that. An outlier is just a data point that's rare, right? It's, it's some extreme observation in your data set. And, you know, I had thought for a long time about creating uh, the ability to just identify outliers in a data set and show them to customers. The problem is most of the outliers no one would care about. Every data set naturally has outliers. And, you know, focusing on them may not be that productive, may not be that interesting. And so what we came up with, and this was using customer feedback in, in e-commerce and in, in publishing verticals as well, is a check that allows a customer to kind of focus the nature of the outlier. And so what you do is you say, first, I want to define an entity. And an entity could be an IP address is an entity, or an entity could be a store location. An entity could be, you know, an individual customer in my e-commerce website. And for each entity, I want to compute some statistic. I want to compute the number of visits per IP address, or I want to compute the you know, total revenue uh, per store location, or I want to compute how long it took you know, each customer to check out. And then what we will do is take that as a population and build a time series for, well, what is the maximum value for that metric we would expect across a population? right? What's the maximum number of visits per IP we would expect or the maximum store you know, sales we would expect? And we can control for seasonality and the history of you know, how the business has evolved using our time series technology. And we'll identify if on a given day, an entity pierces that maximum. You suddenly have one IP address that's 10% of your, your web, web traffic. Well, obviously that's a scraper. Or you suddenly have one store location that has sold you know, 10 times more than you would ever expect a store location to sell, that's probably actually a data quality issue or some you know, massive event that you should try to replicate. And so that has been a really interesting uh, use case that we've developed for some of these specific verticals. So I get the sense that Anomalo has pretty intelligent defaults when I might go in and do customization, but if you encounter a user like a data scientist who knows the algorithms really well and they want to do some very fine-grained tuning, what sort of options do they have available? Yeah, so... There's a few different layers of options. For any of the checks in Anomalo, you can go into advanced options and make lots of configuration changes there. And so we basically expose you know, a lot of the underlying you know, configuration for the algorithm or for the check to the user in the UI. And it could be, for example, in a metric, instead of tracking the 95% confidence interval, I want to track the 99% confidence interval. Or I want to track the 80th you know, confidence interval, or I only want to detect changes that are above the confidence interval or below, or actually I want to do an aggregation. I want to do a trailing seven-day mean, 
or I want to filter the data to just a specific subset of the records. And I want to add in some custom where SQL to make that specification. So those are you know, easy kind of advanced options that a user can reach for any of the checks. The next level would be to go down into the SQL itself. And so for the metric side of, of uh, customization, you can just write a SQL query. And as long as the SQL query has a date column, you can have multiple different metrics computed in that SQL query. You can have a segment that you're going to slice the metrics by. You just drop that into a check and we build all of the time series models for you. And so that gives you kind of complete control over the data. Same thing exists on the validation rule side. So if you're really fluent in SQL, you can, you can do a lot of you know, tailoring and customization. I think to go even beyond that, would either use our API, where you can control Anomalo programmatically, you can configure things programmatically, execute them, or extract you know, JSON for all of the results and get the specific details coming back. So that's one way you could have even more advanced control. I think the other is to create new data models. And so this is a common use case in machine learning where you know, I have a set of entities that I'm computing features for every day. And I want to actually detect anomalies in the distribution of those features. And so oftentimes our customers will realize that's a really powerful use case and they'll create a new data model that now saves this, the result of each feature for each customer or for each transaction or right, you know, each entity that they have the features for. Save those you know, on a daily basis and then use Anomalo to, to track that you know, for distributional changes or anomalous behavior. I'm curious if you can speak to any recent releases or stuff on the horizon. What's next for your product? Yeah. So one thing that we are about to release that we're really excited about is our executive dashboard. And you know, this, you know, back to your question about measuring ROI, this is a, a really clean answer to help customers understand that and understand where things are going well, where things are not going so well. It has eight key metrics at the top. You know, we might, we might change that a little bit, but the very top row is about tables themselves. How many tables are there? How many are configured? How many are arriving on time? How many are completely healthy? And then underneath that, it has checks. Again, you know, how many are configured? Uh, how many have run? How many are passing that are key metrics? How many are passing that are validation rules? And then for all of those statistics, it goes into detail and shows you what the time series looks like for that statistic. And it shows you, you know, what tables, what checks are the repeat offenders? And you know, how have they failed on a repeated pattern recently so that you can quickly then click in and understand, you know, is this a check that needs to be changed? Is this a table that needs to be better covered, et cetera? So we're pretty excited about that. And it's already been shown in beta to some of our customers and we'll, we'll GA it here in just the next few weeks. Another really interesting thing that we'll be launching in the next month or so is to take the same machine learning that we use to track drift in data and give it to customers as a tool where they can diff two different SQL queries. And so an example might be, I have you know, a A-B test and I want to compare the control and the test groups. I can write a SQL query to get the control records, write a SQL query to get the test records, and we will use our machine learning to summarize the differences in the distributions and values of the data between those two queries. 
So a pretty pretty impactful and powerful way to, to leverage some of the core machine learning that we have for other types of use cases. And what does it take for an organization to get started? Yeah, so the best thing is to you know, go to anomalo.com and to click on the request a demo. And you know, that will directly go to a Slack channel that I pay attention to and everybody in our, in our team pays attention to. And we'll, we'll see your request and we'll reach out and connect with you, talk about your use case, show you a live demo and walk through the product. And then from there, what customers typically do is a, is a pilot. And you know, that pilot can be as short as one month. You know, some really large organizations might take three. And usually you're running Anomalo as you would run it in production against, you know, some subset of your production tables that you care about. We typically recommend, you know, maybe a dozen. And you can see, you know, how it behaves, how easy it is to configure, you know, the value that your users get out of it and kind of experience that in data that you understand and know. And in part, because we can deploy in VPC, there's not a lot of security risks to doing that. It's operating in your environment. And so we find our customers really value that. It's There's nothing like seeing a product on data that that you're intimately familiar with and that you really care about to understand if it's going to be useful. And so that's the primary step that we take with new customers. And you want to share a link where listeners can learn more? Yeah, so you can go to anomalo.com. And on uh, anomalo.com, there's a button at the very top that says request a demo. And so you can just click on that. It's actually anomalo.com slash request a demo is the full URL. Sounds good. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. You're absolutely welcome, Kyle. It was a real pleasure to talk with you.